Excellent Singing Church, you may have a seat, and while you're grabbing your seat, grab a copy of your Bibles, you want to turn to the last chapter of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, we'll be uh, finishing up this sweet letter um, this Sunday and next. Grateful for Brother Nick uh, in the pulpit. Last week, uh, please pray for Nick. He hurt his back pretty bad uh, yesterday, I think, at work, and he's probably at home watching, recouping, but he, I'm sure, um, covets your prayers. Well, this week, uh, I picked up an article. The article was entitled, 10 of the Worst Conversation Faux Pas Someone Can Make. 10 of the Worst Conversation Faux Pas Someone Can Make, and Maybe you just uh, committed a couple right now during our meet and greet time. Let's find out. Uh, I was kind of embarrassed because as I'm reading these, I I know that I've done more than one on many occasions. But here are some faux pas to avoid. Uh, Being totally uninterested in what someone is saying. I actually had a friend who he would ask you how you're doing, and as soon as he started talking, he'd go, that's not cool. Checking your phone while you're talking to people. Speaking with your mouth full. One-upping someone's story. You've been there, probably done that. Someone's talking about like the snake they encountered on their hike yesterday and you have to go into a long story about the dragon you slayed while you were hiking uh, Mount Fiji or Fuji. How about uh, correcting someone's grammar? Do you do that? Now parents, that's cool if we do that to our kids, but... You know, our peers, that's a different story. Excuse me, or or pardon me, it is the team did well, not the team did good. Some of us are more eager to do that. How about forgetting someone's name or calling them by the wrong name? Asking rude questions. Apparently, you're not supposed to ask a woman how old she is or if she's pregnant. Advocating strong views on politics and religion. I think uh, all of us are guilty of some of these faux pas, but there's also something known as uh, preaching faux pas. And this is not just things that you want to not say while delivering a sermon, but things to avoid altogether. Now, obviously, your view of the Bible really will dictate the topics that are on or off limits. I would say that uh, any sermon that doesn't have the Bible open and Christ isn't being preached is not really a sermon, but you will read some books and hear from some people who will tell you there's certain things that you shouldn't talk about, especially if you want to grow your church or if you want visitors who are coming for the first Sunday to come back. Don't say certain things, they'll tell you, and that list of things includes don't talk about sin, don't talk about sexuality, don't talk about submission, don't talk about sensitive political issues, don't talk about race, abortion, hell, and whatever you do. Do not talk about money and giving. And for those of you that are new, we spent the last couple weeks talking about money and giving and generosity, and that's because here at Grace Church Monterey Bay, we're going to talk about whatever the Bible talks about. We want to be faithful to expositing the Word. But this morning, we're actually going to look at a verse that everyone, when they read it, they say, hey, yes and amen to that. I like that. It's not offensive to me at all. In fact, I want to get this tattooed on my shoulder. It's Philippians 4, 19. This is what it says. 
And my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Many people read that and they say, wow, what an amazing promise. And it's a promise that's claimed by not just Christians, but even non-Christians like to claim promises like these. But as we take a closer look at this verse this morning, there's actually a premise to the promise. See, I think this verse is fantastic. It is a blank check. It's signed by God himself and it's backed by his surplus. But it's only for a select group of people. So let's read uh, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10 to provide some context. And then we'll just look at this one verse. We looked at two chapters the last time we were together. Now it's just this one verse. Here's God's word to us this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the, in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the fruit which increases to your accounts. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I have been filled, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, thankful to be able to gather, to sing songs that remind us of your bounty and your beauty, your majesty, your glory, and your grace to us. Would you continue to extend that grace to help us to be good listeners, good learners, and obedient to your truth? We need you, Lord. Be our help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our main idea for this morning, if you're taking notes, uh, is this. In Philippians 4, verse 19, Paul promises that those who are generous toward God will find that he is generous toward them and will supply their every need in Christ because of a surpassing generosity and all sufficiency. You say, Dom, that is a long run-on sentence. Yeah, but Paul does that, so I feel fine. Once again, Paul promises that those who are generous toward God will find that he is generous toward them and will supply their every need in Christ because of a surpassing generosity and all sufficiency. And the outline that will follow has several major points, but it just comes all from the text. First, we're going to look at the source of provision. Paul says that it is my God. Then we'll look at the surety of provision, the promise that he will fulfill it, the scope of the provision, how, how wide, how much does this span? It says here, all your needs. 
the superabundance of provision. This is according to his riches in glory and the Savior of provision. This is all in Christ Jesus. The provision, uh, the source of provision, the surety of provision, the scope of provision, the superabundance of provision, and the Savior of provision. The first thing I want us to note is that, again, we have to read it in context. That's why we went back to verse 10. You can't look at verse 19 and isolate it from the context. In fact, look at the very beginning of verse 19. It begins with that word day or, or but. It is a connecting word, and it's connecting this amazing promise with, Paul, with what Paul has just stated in the previous section. Remember, the context of this promise is Paul's gratitude. This whole letter is expressing his heartfelt gratitude to a church that hasn't forgot about him, that continues to love him, that is expressing their generosity to him and doing so in deep poverty. And so that's the context. And again, it starts back in 410. And what Paul is just saying, look, I love you. And I'm so thankful for your partnership and and your provision for, for caring for me at a distance while I sit here in prison. And that's where Paul is. He's, he's sitting under house arrest in Rome. And you think about this. Uh, I just read in an article that there are some prisons that are now offering Pilates and yoga. Okay? Our prisons are looking more like resorts. That is not how it was in the first century. They're not giving Paul three meals a day. Paul doesn't have a roommate. He can't just go and work out when he wants to. They're not giving him clothing. They're not caring for him. They're not communicating anything of encouragement to him. In fact, if someone from the outside doesn't help Paul, he's most likely going to die there in prison. And so he's waiting to find out if they're going to chop his head off, and he's there suffering in prison. Everything that Paul has is dependent on those outside who love and support Paul. And we learned over the last several weeks that the Philippian church, more than any other church, consistently provided for Paul's needs. They didn't forget about him, but they stuck by his side, despite their poverty. So Paul, what do you need? You need food? We'll get you food. We need some clothing? We'll get you some clothing. You need your books? We'll, get, we'll send you some books. And they met Paul's needs. Now, the question is, well, how is Paul going to return the favor? Well, obviously, if he's sitting in prison, he's not going to turn around with a check to Epaphroditus to say, here, go give this to the Philippians. He can't pay them back. He's not in a position to match or or multiply, especially material goods, but he knows someone that can. And that is where we begin, the source of provision. Look at what Paul says. And my God will fulfill all your needs. God is the source of provision. My God, Paul says, will do what I'm not in a position to do, You have needs, I can't meet them, but God can. And when Paul says, my God, he is identifying a very close and personal relationship with the Father. He's not denying that God is the God of the Philippians as well. He's just saying, he's my God. I know him personally. He's come through for me time and time again. And because I know my God, I know that he will come through for you You know, Martin Luther famously said that religion consists in personal pronouns. Some people, they talk about God, and they talk about God a lot, but they don't do it in a personal way. I'm not sure if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door. I want to know, do you really know the God of the universe? 
So are you talking about him personally? Are you talking about him like he's here? There are lots of people who talk about God, but God is abstract and distant, but not to the Apostle Paul. When Paul talks about God, he is intimate and personal. King David also spoke of God in a very personal way. You remember, the Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd, not just a shepherd, not just a good shepherd, but he is my shepherd. This is how Paul related to God. He had a long, personal, intimate relationship, and because he had experienced God providing for him throughout all these years, he can with confidence say, my God is going to provide for you. Now, I remember when I was in junior college, I had a friend of mine who uh, took me and a bunch of uh, my buddies to a restaurant. It was a Mexican restaurant. And uh, we got there, and I told him, I said, look, dude, I don't have any money. And he's like, oh, no, it's okay. And so he goes up to the counter, and he starts ordering all this food, and carne asada and carnitas and beans and cheese and burritos and all rice and beans and give me this and some chips and salsa. And I'm like, all right, all right. So he rings up the bill, and it was like over 100 bucks. And then he turns to me, he's like, all right, bro, I need some money. I said, dude, I just told you, I don't have any money. What are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm just playing. My dad owns the restaurant. <laughs> and I was like, sweet, man, and throw a chocolate in there, too. <laughs> but I remember when uh, his dad came out, he didn't look too happy. And I thought to myself, oh, man, did we just get him in trouble? But then right behind him was a couple of servers with more food. And they put it down on the table in front of us. And he just said, I love to feed my son and to feed my son's friends. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing right here. I know my God. I know my Father. He's generous. He's gracious. He loves to give and he loves to bless his son and his son's friends. Brothers and sisters, aren't you grateful that he's your Father? He's your God. It would be a bummer if this was just Paul's God or the prophet's God or just the pastor's God. But the reality is the Bible teaches us that not one person has exclusive rights to the God of the universe. If you are in Christ this morning, the Bible is very clear that he is your God personally. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection doesn't just give us direct access to him, but we've actually been adopted by the Father. I love when Jesus, he rose from the dead, and Mary Magdalene is there, and he tells Mary Magdalene this. He said, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, and to my God and to your God. So listen, kids, if you're in here and you're listening, I want you to realize something that these stories that your parents are teaching you about the great saints of old, when you think about how God provided for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that's your God too. When you learn about God's faithfulness to Moses and Joshua and to Rahab and to Ruth, that is your faithful God as well. When you think about God's protection of David and Daniel, Elijah and all the prophets, remember that their God is your God this is why I love to gather on Sundays and why uh, that time during COVID was miserable because I love to be in here, hearing other people sing. 
There's a million things that are going on in my own heart as I'm envisioning standing before the throne and the throngs of people and every tribe, nation, and tongue. All that's a reality while I'm singing. But when I hear your voices and when I hear kids' voices singing, I'm reminded it's not just my God, it's their God as well. And it is a joy to my heart that he is our God. So God is the source of provision, but this provision, watch this, is promised. Look at what it says next, the surety of provision. It says, and my God will fulfill all your needs. Paul is guaranteeing this, guaranteeing that God will supply and meet their needs. And what he's saying is, look, brothers and sisters, you have filled me up. God will fill you up. He's promising it. It's an unbelievable promise. In fact, it's so unbelievable that Jerome, back in the early 400s AD, he actually tampered with the text. I don't like this. This is why I like the legacy standard Bible. Just give me what it says. But Jerome in the Latin Vulgate, he nuanced Paul's statement because he thought, no, I don't think you should give that kind of promise. This needs to be more of a wish, more of a prayer than a promise this shouldn't be a guarantee because people are going to abuse it. But that's actually not what the text says. Paul is making a promise. The word here is playro, and it's, just to get technical real quick, it's a future indicative. If it was meant to be a wish or a desire, it would be in the subjunctive, but it's not. It is the future indicative. So this isn't he may, he might, he will. He will. It's an unqualified, non-contingent statement. God will undoubtedly provide for your needs. Now you say, well, how can Paul make this kind of promise on behalf of God? How can he do it with so much certainty? I mean, isn't this kind of presumptuous of Paul? We say no, because Paul knew God personally. Not only that, but he knew what the scriptures taught. When you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find this over and over again. In Deuteronomy 28.8, we read this, Yahweh will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you send forth your hand to do, and he will bless you in the land which Yahweh, your God, gives you. Proverbs 3 in verse 9, Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty. Now, if you're a good Bible student, you say, wait a second, Dom, that's some Old Testament stuff, Old Covenant stuff, and I would say, good job. But 2 Corinthians 1.20 reminds us that because of the blood of Christ and because of the new covenants, that all the promises of God are what? Yes and amen. So Paul isn't bashful here. He knows that since the Philippians met the premise, then they could count on the promise. And you say, well, what again is the premise? They were consistent and generous givers. They were giving to God. They were giving for Paul's supply, but they were ultimately worshiping God through their giving. Remember the Lord Jesus' own words on the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6, in verse 38. Jesus himself says, give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. It was the great missionary Hudson Taylor who once said, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not 
not lack for God's supply. So there it is, the source of provision, my God, the surety of that provision that God will, in fact, provide. Now let's look at the scope of this provision. My God will fulfill all your needs. All your needs. Now he says your, and we don't want to just bypass that too quickly, right? Because he's talking to the Philippians. We don't want to be too quick to claim the promise for ourselves and just make this universally apply. The promise is made to the church because they had been extremely generous in their ministry to Paul. And because that was the case, Paul can say with confidence that my God will respond in kind. He's going to reciprocate his blessings to you, church. Now, with that said, I don't think this promise is just limited to that local church there in Philippi. It's not just for them. I do think it extends to all those who would give towards the Lord's work. And notice, too, that God just doesn't reciprocate blessing and provision. It actually says here that it's filled to the very brim. God fills up and fully supplies everything he knows that we really and truly need. Whatever your need, listen, it will never, ever exceed the liberality of God's provision. So, when you think about the many hours that you're putting in to serve the church, when you're thinking about the financial gifts you give, when you think about the talents that you're using to build up the body, if you're a faithful partner here in this local church and other gospel preaching ministries, the guarantee is for you. God is going to provide for your needs. He will. But more than just the physical material needs, I think it goes beyond that. Paul makes it clear that God will provide for all your needs, all of them, not just some of them, not just most of them, but he's very clear with the word, all your needs. And when you think back to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, we saw there that the Philippians were suffering, they're facing opposition, and yet God richly supplied them with steadfastness and joy and encouragement. We learned that they needed to be unified. So what did God do? He helps them with, by providing the same kind of mind, the same kind of heart, same goal, same soul. God provides that mindset. They were in need of humility. Well, God richly supplied the grace necessary for humility. They needed grace to stop grumbling. They needed grace to uh, rid themselves of anxiety and what do we see over and over again? He richly supplies the church with the peace of God, the kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. Do you have needs? Of course you do. What's God's promise? I'll supply all your needs. No matter what you need, you can count on God. He's going to provide you with strength and endurance, with joy and contentment and encouragement, whatever it is you need. And my question to you is, are you comforted by that? Does that bring you joy? Does it bring you joy that he knows what you need before you do? Does it bring you joy that his promise to supply what you truly need and what you need right now, he will provide? Listen, all of God's provisions are wise, they're sufficient, they're generous, and they're also timely. And this is where you jump in and say, well, wait a second, Pastor. 
Because I've been at this Christian thing for a while here, and it seems like God is providing for a lot of other people's needs, but feels like my needs aren't getting met. It feels like he's kind of skipped me once or twice. And I just want to be clear that Paul's promise here is to provide for needs, not your greeds. Which means that sometimes we think we need things that we don't. And if I can just say bluntly, if you don't have something, God in his wisdom doesn't think you need it. He doesn't think you need it. This is not a promise that God will provide everything that you think you want. He's not just like some genie waiting for you to make your wishes and to allow you to cash in on it. There's nothing that a faithful servant of God truly needs that God will not provide. That's the promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8 reads this, And God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. There's a reason why Paul is repetitive there because everything you need to bring God glory, he will provide. So we've looked there at the source of provision. It's God. My God, the surety of provision, he will provide. The scope of provision is all your needs. And now we come to the super abundance of provision. Where are all these supplies going to come from? Now, you just remembered two years ago to a time that we like to forget. Do you guys remember when those cool checks came in the mail called stimulus checks? Well, those didn't last very long. They came and went. And do you remember walking into the grocery store and actually seeing all of the aisles bare? Do you remember the day where we were rationing toilet paper? We can't depend on the local market, the stock market, our state, our country, our government to provide for us. Printing money is not going to solve our problems. So, The question is, well, where do we turn when our resources run dry? Look at what Paul says about the superabundance of God's provision. The supply that comes to you in your time of need comes from a storehouse, Paul says here, that's according to his riches in glory. And you say, well, how rich is God? Or how many riches does he have? He's as rich as he is. God is inherently rich. He's infinite. Calvin and I were having a little conversation before the service, and he said, Pastor Dom, I have a question for you. And I said, Calvin, what what is it? He says, how long is eternal? It's like, dude, come on, bro. What What a deep question for early morning. So I tried my very best on one knee to explain to little Calvin, everything runs out. Time runs out, energy runs out, everything runs out. But there's something that keeps going on and on and on and on and on, and that's God. And one day we get to join him and be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And you say, why? Because he is rich in glory. And that richness and glory actually comes down to us. 
In Psalm 89, 11, we read this. The heavens are yours, and the earth also is yours. The world and all its fullness, you have founded them. So listen, if you're in Christ this morning, you will have forever to figure out just how rich God is, and that's exactly how long you'll need, because you will not exhaust God. He is infinite. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Now notice there the prepositions Paul uses to describe these riches that are coming from God. He says, my God will fulfill all your needs. And then he uses this word, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God gives according to his riches. Listen to this. He doesn't give out of his riches. I was reading an article about an NBA player that we will not name, but he was highly criticized because he has a reputation of going to restaurants and bars and tacking on these $1,000 bills and leaving no tips. And so one waitress finally got upset and posted that on Twitter so everyone could see just how cheap this guy is. But when you look at his contract and see how many multi-million dollars that dude gets in just a second of playing basketball, it's shameful. See, a lot of people, they will give out of, right? If you have $2 billion, I can give you $2. That's giving out of my money, but it's not giving in accordance with. It's not giving corresponding to. The Bible says that God does not give out of, but he gives according to, which means that he's generous. He's lavish. Not only that, but God never runs out. You and I, we get depleted. We run out of time and money and gas and energy and patience and you name it. We run out of it, but God never runs out of anything. He never runs out of riches. He never runs out of glory. Paul actually will say this over and over again throughout his letters, just how rich God is. In Romans 2.4, we read about the riches of his kindness. In Romans 9.23, we read about the riches of his glory. In Romans 11.33, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In Ephesians 1.7, it is the riches of his grace. In Ephesians 1.18, it is the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Ephesians 3.8, it is the riches of Christ proclaimed to the Gentiles. God's riches are not like the stock market or real estate or gold or oil. God's riches are in glory. And the assurance we have from God's word this morning is that he will provide for all of our needs according to his riches in glory. Do you think that you have everything you need? Is God providing for you? Do you think God has enough to meet your physical needs? How about your emotional needs, spiritual needs? Let's make that a little bit more concrete. When your marriage is not what you want it to be, can God meet your needs? When your spouse uses words that hurt you, can God meet your needs? 
when you need to forgive what seems unforgivable? Can God meet your needs? When your friend betrays you, when a parent has health that's declining, when a girlfriend or boyfriend breaks up with you and you don't know why, when you learn that your child has a disease that's incurable, when someone in the flock here sins against you grievously, or when the leadership doesn't maybe respond the way that you want them to, can God meet your needs? If you continue to be single while all of your friends are getting married, can God meet your needs? When you're hoping to conceive, but you just can't, can God meet your needs? When you find you're tempted intensely, you feel desperately lonely, when you struggle to make decisions, when your future seems uncertain, when you're running out of time, do you still say, God, you're my God, and you meet all of my needs according to the riches you have in glory? Listen, Christian, God has no trouble providing for every single one of your needs. His provision comes from an infinite storehouse of riches and glory. Listen to this wonderful reminder from the Puritan Thomas Brooks. He says this, The water that can fill the sea can much more fill a cup. And that sun which can fill the world with light can much more fill my house with light. So that God that fills heaven and earth with his glory can much more fill my soul with his glory. What a beautiful quote. And I just have to be honest with you, church, that I sometimes question God in my own heart, not so much his ability to do these things, but I think what I question, just honestly speaking, is his willingness, his willingness to meet my needs. I do often drift into this works-based mentality that says, you know what, I'm not, I'm not good enough, I'm not reading my Bible enough, I'm not praying for a church enough, I'm just not doing enough for God to actually meet my needs. And this is exactly why we need to gather and be reminded of the gospel of grace. We need to be the best preachers to ourselves. You and I can have confidence that God will provide for our needs. And you say, why are you so sure of that? And here's the answer. Because God has already provided for your greatest need. That is how you can be sure. You had a tremendously great need and God has already met it. You say, what are you talking about? Well, what is our greatest need? We've rebelled against God. We deserve condemnation. We deserved judgment. We deserved hell. We deserved separation. And what did God provide? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How about Romans 8.32? He who indeed did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you understand the logic that's coming through Romans 8.32? Paul is saying, if God has given his son to meet our greatest need, our need to be reconciled, our need to be saved, our need to be forgiven, if he did not spare judgment on his own son, but he gave him up for us, how will he not also freely give us all things? 
all of our lesser needs, it's no problem for God if he's already given us the greatest gift in his son. Listen, you're here this morning, I think, just because God wants to remind you he can meet your needs. He can. He promises it. You talk to those that have walked with God for a long time, they've experienced it over and over and over again. He's not only rich, but his character is one of boundless generosity. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11? He says this, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, as rich as God is in glory, so rich is he in giving. He never demeans himself in the mercies that he gives. No, he gives according to his rank, and that is the highest conceivable. Listen, no one in here, collectively, in this room, or in our country, or in the world, we're never going to outgive God. You can't outgive the giver of all things. And so when we talk about a prodigal God or a lavish God, that is who God is. He is lavish and generous in his character. So that is the source, the surety, the scope, the superabundance, and finally, the Savior of provision. Look there at how he concludes this verse. My God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory, and he says this, in Christ Jesus and I just love geeking out on prepositional phrases. I mean, these are fantastic. What he's saying is, everything comes to us in Christ. If you are in Christ, this is all yours. Paul begins the letter in 1-1, all the saints that are in Christ, he finishes the letter by reminding us that God provides for every believer's needs in Christ. Peace that surpasses understanding comes in Christ. We can have contentment in every circumstance if we are in Christ. And now he says, God will supply all your needs if you are found in Christ. Paul would just remind you this morning from 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. It's only through a living, vital union with Christ that we can enjoy these blessings. There is no gift, listen, there is no gift that can be enjoyed by his creation except they be enjoyed in Christ. You say, why? Well, because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. Our God and Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Listen, church, God is good to his children. He is. He has never, ever, ever let anyone down. He's never failed once. He can't fail. If he's given up his son, he's not going to fail on the lesser things. His riches, like his love, will always be available to those who are in Christ.
And I think just understanding the promise of Philippians 4.19, what does that do? It prevents us from holding so tightly to the stuff that we think is ours. When we're unwilling to give, God says, well, why not? It doesn't belong to you anyway. Give, give generously, expand the kingdom, be a blessing to others, and test me. Go right ahead. See if I will not provide more abundantly in my riches in Christ Jesus. I want to close with the words of the late doctor, and you're going to trip out on this name, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. You guys know who Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge is? Some of you do. You've heard his name. It's just S.M. Lockridge. He was a prominent African-American pastor down in Calvary Baptist in San Diego. But he preached a very famous sermon back in 1976, and the sermon was called Amen. You may have not listened to the sermon. You can. You can go online and listen to it. But I almost guarantee you've probably heard the last five minutes of that sermon. And that sermon is entitled, or that the clip anyway, is entitled, That's My King. His words, I think, are extremely fitting for this text. And I can't read it like him. Probably not going to have the passion that that brother has. But I want us to meditate on the words. Because when we think about God being our all-sufficient Savior, sometimes we just need reminders of who He actually is. So this is what He says. He says, My King was born King. He's the King of the Jews. He's the King of Israel. He's the King of righteousness, the King of the ages. He's the King of heaven. He's the King of glory. He's the King of kings, and He's the Lord of lords. David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Well, my King is a sovereign King. No means of measure that can be that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. My king, he's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, imperially powerful, impartially merciful. Do you know this king? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He is God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He is august. He is unique. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem in higher criticism. He is the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He is the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. That is my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you can choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be the all-sufficient Savior. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. And then he asked, I wonder if you know him. My king is a key, is the key to knowledge. 
the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway of deliverance, the path of peace, the roadway of righteousness, the highway of holiness, the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty, the captain of the conquerors, the head of heroes, the leader of legislatures, the overseer of overcomers, the governor of governors, the prince of peace, the princes. He's the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't live without him. And you can't uh, outlive him. The Pharisees stood against him. They found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimony degree about him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. He always has been. He always will be. He has no predecessor and he has no successor. There's nobody before him. There'll never be anyone after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That is my king. That's fantastic if he is your king. But listen, if he's not, if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, you are in a world of trouble. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's available to you today. If you would turn to him in faith and repentance and embrace his free gift, you will be saved. If you'd like to talk more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I love to talk to you as well as many of our members. Let's pray. Father, as great as that is, the reality is there are no words that can come close to expressing just how great you are, how magnificent you are, how sufficient you are, how beautiful you are. And so, Father, we just uh, confess with the Apostle Paul how unsearchable, how unfathomable are you in all of your ways. Father, we delight to know you. We're thankful for the grace that you've extended, for the salvation you provided, and for the relationship that you've established. Help us always to be mindful, appreciative, and full of gratitude for all that you've accomplished for us. And may we prove that by the way we live, by the way we give, by the way we serve, by the way we submit, by the way we're obedient to your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.